On this episode of the 218 Podcast with me, Owain Gwynedd, I'm catching up with a really good friend of mine, Barry Griffiths, or better known as Mason Ryan from the WWE, or Goliath from the second series of Gladiators on ITV. A lot of stories in this one, and ones even his friends and family haven't heard before, so it's definitely worth a listen. Barry Griffiths, Mason Ryan, Barry Ristler, how are you today? How's life over in Vegas? Yeah, fantastic. Uh, it's uh, nice to speak to you all. Yeah, uh, yes. It's going to be a little strange doing it in the, in the <laughs> English language today, but uh, I'll try my best. Well, I think kind of both our accents have probably changed slightly since we I think, probably yeah. last met up in Tremadog. Yeah, I think so. Well, my, mine has definitely changed, unfortunately. I get get told I have a, a Yankee twang now, which I try and try and play down, but it's uh, it's a little too strong. The problem I had, not to make a long story short, but is uh, when I first got here, people wouldn't understand me. Literally, people would not understand what I was talking about, this thick farmer accent, and people wouldn't understand a word I would say. So I would go to out to eat with my mates, and we'd be at the restaurant, and I'd say, can I have a burger and fries, please? And the waitress would be like, can I have a burger and fries, please? What? And I would look at my friends here. Can you have a burger and fries, please? <laughs> oh yeah, of course. And it got embarrassing after a while. So I think that that's that's kind of what happened. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. So Vegas, kind of how how's Vegas? How's life there? Um, been treating you. Obviously, you settled down. You got a, a family now as well. Yeah, I've been in Vegas now nearly. It'll be five years in November, um, which is mad to think because it's literally flown by. Um, it's a little bit different to the small town of Tremadic that I grew up in, you know, the bright lights of Vegas. But no, I love it here. And I've been lucky since I moved over to the US. I've lived in Tampa and I've lived in Vegas and two places where it's very sunny. And, um, you know, growing up in Wales, we both know that the weather isn't always the best. So here in Vegas, it hasn't literally hasn't rained in about four months now. So every day I wake up and the sun is shining and there's not a cloud in the sky. So that's for me, I love that about this place. And most people know Vegas as the, you know, the strip and gambling and hangover and, you know, big fights and stuff like that. And it's all of that. But um, in Vegas, it's, you know, I live 10, 15 minutes away from the strip and I just live a, a pretty normal life. I, I, most people who live in Vegas, they avoid the strip plague or they avoid it like the pandemic maybe is what I should say <laughs> now, but. They avoid it because it's just it's craziness there. You know, if you want to go there and people watch every now and again, it's okay. But you'll go down there for half an hour and be like, okay, I'm, I'm done for a year. I don't need to come back here because it's just madness and people are rude and it's just a complete mess. But yeah, Vegas is great. Um, for those maybe kind of who don't know you as, as, as well, probably the S4C crowd would have kind of known your, your background coming through on Welsh language telly. Take me back to the Tremadoc days when we grew up together. Um, kind of how did you get into wrestling to begin with and what do you do before wrestling? Yeah, thinking back, I, I think it's quite a mad story. Um, I grew up in a place called Tremadoc in North Wales, tiny, tiny little place. It's got about 200 people, I think, that live there. It's a really small place, but it's got three pubs, right? That tells you a lot about... I always tell that story here. People are like, oh, you, you must have been alcoholics. I was like, no, it's just just the norm where I'm from. Um, <laughs> So I grew up in this tiny little town, um, you know, went to university in Cardiff, realized I didn't have the brains for it, went back to work for my dad. My dad had a, a carpentry and undertaking business that had been passed down from my great grandfather. And I think it's, the business is probably over a uh, hundred years old by this point. Um, started working there, didn't really like it, just 
something I fell into. I was probably the worst carpenter in the history of carpentry, to be honest, because it was <laughs> something I really did enjoy and was just kind of stuck doing it. Um, through that, I was always big into sports, loved sports, football. I nearly called it soccer and football, golf, tennis, rugby, anything, anything I could play. But football was my main ones. And I also enjoyed going to the gym and working out. So I started working out more and more um and kind of stopped playing football and was lifting weights a lot and I was like wow I'm here I'm on a Saturday night I'll be in the gym and I'll be eating healthy while everyone's in the pub getting drunk and I was like well I'm building something here and I'm living this professional athlete type life I should try and do something in it so at, at the time wrestling came on tv or something I was like oh I think I could maybe do that you know because I had some athleticism I had you know I was sporting background so I kept working out. I was like, oh, how, can I, uh, how can I start wrestling? Because we lived in Wales, right? It's not like the WWE is coming around to Chamadoc anytime soon. You know what I mean? So it just so happened a, a few months later that um, a small-time wrestling show came to, came to the local football club there. And there was a famous uh, wrestling promoter that was well-known in the Welsh speaking circles, a guy named Orig Williams. He was a bit of a legend, to be honest with you. So I went down, down there with two friends. Uh, one might be on the call with me <laughs> right now. <laughs> and, and I completely had the intention of trying to meet him, but I never told that to anyone, really. This is kind of kept this thing to myself. And I went there and we started having a few drinks and my friends went to talk to him and I ended up talking to this promoter. The, uh, truth, the truth is, you, at the time, you didn't have the courage to go off I was sober, to be honest. So, yeah, yeah and you, you may have had a few drinks. Yeah, that's true. I was, yeah. I was like, all right, you go talk to him. Because he, he was a bit of a legend. And if you didn't know him, he could have a, a look of kind of quite intimidating, to be honest, to look at him. Yeah. You know, no, no, no nonsense guy. So I ended up going to talk to him. And he loved that I spoke, spoke Welsh and the way that I looked and the sporting background and everything. So I started training with him. And the, uh, that relationship, you know, he really turned into a mentor and someone that I really looked up to guiding me. He was, he was amazing to me. I wouldn't be here in Las Vegas today if I hadn't had that meeting with him that day. But what a character he was. For people who don't know him, I wish, I wish he was still alive and you could have interviewed him because he had some unbelievable stories. To, to give you um, an idea of who he was and kind of what he did, he started when he was 18, I think, going, to, going around with affairs and the fairs back then, and I'm talking, he's, he, I think he would have been in the mid-80s by now. So we're talking, you know, 70 years ago. So can you imagine what the fairs were like? So he somehow joined the fair, uh, traveling circus, traveling fair, sorry, to travel all over Europe. And what he, the, the, he was part of the boxing and the, rex, the wrestling booth. So at the time, they would have a wrestling booth and a boxing booth that they would challenge local um, people to fights and to wrestling matches. But, you know, if anyone knows anything about the um, fairs and carny people, you know, carnival people, you know, they're not, they're not always the most straight people, right? They've got to find a way to kind of work the system. But he started, his boxing booth was in the middle, in between the Ring of Fire, so the motorbikes that would go through the Ring of Fire and the burlesque show, so essentially the strippers. So that's where he got. And he, he told me the story that what they would do is when the boxers would, would challenge the local people, they would have a hole in the corner of the ring and the boxers would shadow, shadow the guy into the hole in the corner of the ring. And the second he would fall, whack, they would knock him out and take advantage of him. So that was just, just a classic story of yeah. who this guy was. Amazing, amazing man. Never, ever a dull moment. And he just, 
pretty much taught me everything I know, which sounds kind of bad now when I say it like that. <laughs> but he was, because I, I thought you, I got to meet him a couple of times with you, kind of come to watch you in, in a few shows in, in North Wales. But to go with that kind of um, maybe streetwise streak that he had through going to the shows, he was actually a genuinely very nice man who, who looked after everybody who kind of came into his, into his domain and the ring, didn't he? He was, he was just a gentleman. Yeah, he was... He was, he was so again, wrestling promoters are not always have the don't always have the best reputation, and probably rightly so. But he was a guy that you couldn't find anyone that spoke a bad word. He because he'd been a wrestler himself as well, so he knew that background. So he always, always, always took care of the wrestlers, and um, everyone used to love working for him. Just not only because of that, because because he was a fantastic character. And, I could go on all day about the funny yeah. stories, but his show had to be done by 9.30. The show had to be finished by... He was really mad if the show was, wasn't was finished by 9.30 because he said the pubs closed at 10.30 and he needed to be <laughs> by 10.30. So if you went a second over 9... The show went a second over 9.30, he'd be furious because he needs to be back home in the pub. He'd be, he'd be ducking your wages. So, yeah. so, so how did that then progress to becoming a fully-fledged professional wrestler? Because can I imagine... You know, WWE and, and shows around Wales and, and England weren't as gram- glamorous in comparison. Yeah, no, they, no, they weren't. And that's put it nicely. Yeah. Well, so I wrestled for about three or four years in the UK. And I would say about three of that was, I guess you would call it professionally, but I wasn't making any money really. You know, I was living at home, you know, but I was gone all week. So I'd be home for a day or two and then I'd be gone again. But I was doing, you know, you'd be doing small theatres, leisure centres, you know, and, you know, the crowds weren't great. It'd be two, 300 people. It was fun. Don't get me wrong. I loved it. I learned a lot. <coughs> and it's always fun to entertain people, right? It doesn't matter if it's 20,000 or if it's 2,000 or 200, right? Whatever it is, it's always fun. But, you know, definitely, um, you know, smaller production than what you would see on TV. You know, the, 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 we wouldn't have any kind of lighting. It wouldn't be any kind of sound system. The way he would um, work the sound system, he'd have a microphone. And you have a cassette player, and you put the <laughs> microphone to the cassette player, and that's how he play the entrance music. It was brilliant. So, so yeah, it was it wasn't anything grand to start off with, but you know, I learned a lot during that time, and um, I paid my dues, as they say, you know, and just kind of learned the trade. So, th- that was a lot of fun, and I was doing it full time at that time, but I was, you know, <laughs> barely scraping by, just making enough for beer money, and that was about <laughs> it. You know, um, but it was a, a good experience because you know there was a lot of experience all the wrestlers about, you know, a lot of good wrestlers in the UK. So I had the experience and, you know, getting used to that lifestyle as well, because the, the traveling lifestyle for, you know, for people that are entertainers and stuff, isn't always that easy, right? You're in a different city every night, you're in a hotel, you know, you're trying to find out somewhere, you know, especially for someone like myself to, to train and to go to the gym and to eat, right? So it's, so I learned a lot of those stuff, not just in the wrestling ring, but about the, the wrestling lifestyle. And, you know, at the time I was building my, really building my physique. I was 6'6", six, six, about 20 stone, you know, pre- pretty, pretty lean, in good shape. And, you know, at the time that's, you know, I was, I was what they would, I would say a stereotype WWE wrestler at the time when back in the day, right back, yeah. back you know 10 15 20 years ago I was exactly what they were looking for and so there was a guy who who wrestled with us who was also kind of a scout for WWE and he kept trying to get me to sign for WWE but Ori wanted me to wait and rightly so because he wanted me to get more experience and his theory was that you don't get a second chance to make a first impression so if you're not you know your skills aren't you know honed in and you're not 
you know, slightly polished. You don't need to be the finished article, but you, you've got to have some skills. If you turn up without that, people are going to, you know, only see one thing in you and it's going to be hard for you to turn that around. So I waited a few years and eventually he got me to go to the O2 arena where the WWE was. It just happens to be down in London. I was actually doing the Paul O'Grady show, but not as a guest or anything. They needed someone to pick up Paul O'Grady above his head. So somehow I got into that and I was on the Paul O'Grady show for about 10 seconds picking him up, which is, which is a good laugh. So I filmed that. I went right to the O2 arena and literally turned up I was hanging around there just with this guy blah blah I'm, you know talking to people and the guy that signs people for the WWE came along and he met me and took me into his office and literally within five minutes of speaking to him he offered me a contract which was which is mad I didn't have to wrestle then I always say I was really lucky like that that you know most people they have to the, the process for most people is that when the WWE are over here they hold tryouts, so they'll be at the O2 Arena, they'll be at the MEN in Manchester, um, they'll be at the arena in Sheffield, I can't remember what the name of it, but they'll be there and they'll invite certain people to to do a tryout. And there'll be 20 guys there trying out usually and you know they'll see if they can wrestle, blah, blah, blah. But luckily for me, because of the way I looked, um, they, they loved that from day one and they literally just signed me up in five minutes, they they offered me the contract. I waited because I was going to try and get more money. I was going to say, yeah, did you sign it there then? They go, yeah, no, thanks. No, they, they they pretty much wanted me to, but I said no. Give me some time to think about it because I wanted to try and get some money. <laughs> so then they actually, so then they actually, about two weeks later, flew me to Tampa. They were like, we want you to see where you what you're getting yourself in for. So they flew me to Tampa to see the training uh, headquarters and whatnot. And then, well, the funny so so, so the funny thing with that was. They said that you would want to show you the place, you know, get yourself, you know, used to Tampa a little bit. We'll fire you there for four or five days. You can hang out, blah, 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 and then come home. So I was like, oh, great. I'm going to Tampa for a vacation. Packed my swimming <laughs> trunks, my tanning oil, all that. Didn't think to pack any of my wrestling stuff. I get there, um, and it turns out they're having a tryout camp, and they want me to be part of the tryout camp. So I've got. I don't even have ten, uh, trainers, tennis shoes, you know, I don't even have a pair of that. So I'm using some like <laughs> climbing shoes or something to be wrestling in the ring with some Bermuda shorts. I looked like a, with no knee pads or anything like that. I looked like a, an idiot. So you're probably I, trying to revoke the contract straight away, were they? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. They were like, who the hell is this guy? So, um, that was, that was, that was an interesting few days. It wasn't, I didn't even get to the beach. So, but, <laughs> but they still wanted to sign me. I think, I think they just wanted to see what I was about a little bit, I think. So, but they didn't tell me that beforehand. So before you got out of Tampa full time to live, because that's about probably 10 years ago now, isn't it? When you actually moved out. Yeah, um, January but when, did, when did the Gladiators on ITV come knocking then? Sorry, yeah, I completely forgot about that. Yeah, so that was um, <laughs> another something. Yeah, sometimes you forget what you've done, right? Because it was that long ago. So I was... Um, <clears throat> I was wrestling for this guy, Oreg Williams, you know, doing the shows all the time. And then one day he, he, he always had like an office set up wherever the show was. He created like a little office for himself, he called it. So he called me into his office. It was probably just part, just a seat behind the table somewhere. But he says, do you, have you heard about the Gladiators thing? I said, what do you mean? Well, I spoke to someone. They said that um, they're redoing Gladiators. They're starting Gladiators again. And they're looking for people to be, the gladiator because i don't think i fit a bill of a contestant so we somehow got a hold of someone and i spoke to them and they're like okay send us the stuff and it was funny because already actually spoke to them he's like he gave them the spiel he was like 
he could sell, he could sell sand to the Arabs, you know, yeah, he was passionate. A snow to the Eskimos, you know, he was that he was, he was a good salesman. He's like, I've got this guy, he's six foot, six foot nine, um, 22 stone. He's built like a Greek god, you know, and I'm six, six, 20 stone, you know, but it's like you can never tell the truth, right? So, so eventually I sent away my stuff and they were like, okay, how quickly can you grow a beard? We, need, we, we would like you to have a beard. I would like that the character that we want you to have to have a beard. And I didn't have a beard at the time. It's like, oh. I don't know, uh, a week or two. Oh, okay. So then Oric, being the character that he was, starts thinking, okay, he starts making calls and he, he speaks to someone who does hair and makeup for S4C and he wants to glue on a beard. We can <laughs> cut some hair, like from, get some hair and glue on the beard for the audition. Can you imagine if I turned up to the audition with glued on beard, like pieces of hair glued on? But he was 100% legit. But luckily the audition wasn't for about two months afterwards. So that gave me plenty of time to grow the beard. And they went down to London and they had so many guys there auditioning it was it was it was probably 200 people there he's 200 guys there so it's you know quite intimidating to think like you know you don't know what they're looking for you really want this it's like really cool gig and you think okay this could be a a, a big break and we did all these physical tests and stuff like that and obviously i must have done pretty well because they called me about a week later um offering me to be on the show and then i got to Maybe a few months later, went down to London. We were there for five or six weeks. Um, an area called Sherwood is, I think, um, Sherwood Studios. Is that? I can't remember. Something like that. They filmed James Bond there as well. So they had this massively elaborate um, set up there. I think you, didn't you come down? Yeah, it was really cool. Yeah, we got to train for about two weeks beforehand. So you yeah. got used to the events and everything like that. So it was an amazing experience, amazing experience to, you know, to be on TV and to, to do all these challenges and to, you know, hang out with Ian Wright. Yeah, because I can imagine as well, for, for you and me, we probably grew up watching Gladiators on TV as well. Was that surreal kind of thinking, gosh, I'm following the same footsteps as, as people I could looked up to about 10, 15? Yeah, it was, absolutely, yeah. Because, yeah, I'm sure like you on Saturday night, it was Gladiators and then Baywatch, right? I think that's what... <laughs> yeah. So I used to, or the other way around. But, um, yeah, I used to watch it in that massive arena, I think, in, in Birmingham and... You know, you had the larger-than-life characters. You had Wolf, you had Shadow, you had yeah. and, um, all those guys. It was just, yeah, it was, it was, it was surreal to start off with. And just to be part of, of, of the show was really cool. Unfortunately, it didn't really turn out to... With, with, uh, with stuff that gets remade, right, it's, it never seems to ever be quite the same. You know, it, that, that the first show had that nostalgia, and they try to, you know, make it into the, to, to something new, and it just... Unfortunately, it didn't quite work out. How, how was Ian Wright then? Because I can imagine yeah, as a football was, fan as well, like me. You, yeah, you... yeah, yeah. I'm a massive football fan. Yeah, it was. he was a top bloke, to be fair. He was really sound because obviously this guy's big star, made tons and tons of money, you know, been in, been in the media a long time. And he could have been, an, uh, you know, a bit of an asshole, but he was, he was really sound, talked to everyone, was like, did his own thing, was a good laugh. Yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun like that. Yeah, so that kind of then probably give you the springboard as well. I imagine uh, probably first taste of real fame and real stardom. Did that then give you the taste that yeah, WWE and being on an even bigger stage, world stage, kind of did it give you the hunger for it? I don't know if it gave you hunger. Maybe give me some belief, more belief. I always had some inner belief that I could all because people always used to tell me to be honest to you. I guess because the way I looked, oh yeah, WWE want to sign you. I always heard yeah. that, so that felt it. But I always you know had some inner belief because I always worked hard, right? I'd, 
you know, I'd have the odd drink here and there, but I always really trained hard, ate pretty healthy and was pretty dedicated to what I did, to be honest. So I always knew that. So that gave me some inner belief in that aspect as well. But yeah, definitely to open that door and to start being on TV, like it's mad to watch yourself on Sky One, like when you're not, you know, you, you know, I'd done some TV stuff with S4C and that was great, not knocking that at all. But to be on Sky One and to be, you know, to have this big glamorous show that which it was it just didn't take off but you know it was it was mad so it was it was a good it was a good um eye-opener to start off with and unfortunately like I said it didn't I was thinking okay this is my big break I'm gonna be set now I'm gonna be on all these tv shows and you know on Emmerdale or whatever from here you know <laughs> what, what, was that your was that your target in life was it that <laughs> was my lifelong dream you had to be on Emmerdale no no but um but it, it didn't it didn't quite work out like that but it you know, they always say things work out for a reason. And it was absolutely the case because a little while later, you know, the, the WWE thing, because the WWE thing happened. Maybe if Gladiators had taken off more, I would have yeah. maybe moved to America and stuff like that. So, so yeah. So how, how long did it take then? You, you got to Tampa. Um, how long did it take then to, to get on the main stage and, and the WWE tour? Because obviously you were them in Tampa and they kind of showed for, for a bit. Yeah, so how it, how it works is you go to Tampa and they have a training school there. So you go to the training school, you learn their style of wrestling, right? Because there's tons of different styles of wrestling all over the world that people might not know because it's obviously entertainment, right? I'm not <laughs> giving away the game anymore. Oh, please, oh no, you spoke yeah. my Christmas <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's like the Tooth Fairy, right? You know, the Tooth Fairy, <laughs> you find out the wrestling isn't real. But um, they, have a, they have a training school that they teach you lots of they So they want the style to be universal so everyone can wrestle each other. So there's not different styles and there's not clashes and stuff. So they teach you that, but also that, you know, it's entertainment. So they want you to create a persona. They want you to learn how to do interviews, to talk on camera, how to be a character. Um, you know, there's all this stuff that people probably don't notice when you, when you're wrestling on TV, there's one main camera. So you're always working to that side for the most part, because who wants to see someone's back of the head, right? So you're always, so like we're like it would be me, you know, turning around and doing the interview facing the other way. You've always working to this camera. There's one main camera. There's other little cameras around, but there's one main camera that you always work to. So if anyone's watching wrestling now, you'll you'll realize that they're always facing the same side for the most part. So you got to learn that kind of style. They call it the hard camera. So hard camera, hard camera. You would always learn that and hear that all the time. So you've got to learn that. And then and then from there, you know, they try what they try and do is create a pool of guys that are ready to wrestle that can the, the, if they need a, a seven foot guy they have a seven foot guy if they need a five foot two guy they have a five foot two guy if they need a a guy who can speak spanish they have a guy that speaks spanish the guy can speak indian you know they they try and create this pool so when it whenever vince mcmahon mad scientist as they call him um decides that he's gonna call one of these guys up or he needs a certain type of person for for the show you know um they can call it up so people can be there for four or five years of people. I've seen people there for three or four months and they're up on TV. But so I was there for about a year learning, learning the skills and, you know, um, learning the style and things like that. And then it happens pretty quickly when it happens there. It kind of comes out of the blue a little bit. And, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd been already traveling to, to TV, as they call it. They film TV every Monday, the, the Raw, and then which is live, and then Tuesday is SmackDown, which is recorded. So... I've been flying out every week to Raw and SmackDown and just kind of, you know, they, they get you kind of used to the process. And then one day this, you know, 
out of the blue, they're like, you're debuting tonight, you know, and it's only a few hours before the show starts. It's kind of how it happens, you know, because oh, really? the shows. So hope this might be interesting. It might not. So how it, how it works is they write the show beforehand. Um, the writers, they have tons and tons of writers. A lot of them are like Hollywood writers and stuff like that. And they're always changing. So they, so they create, create the show the, the day of, or maybe the day before, and then they'll get there and they have a meeting. And usually Vince sees what they've written and rewrites the whole show. <laughs> so it could be, it could be five o'clock in the afternoon and the show starts at seven and they still don't have a show. Nobody knows who anyone is wrestling. Nobody knows what they're doing. Nobody knows what they're going to be saying, what's going to be happening. And then it, sometimes it's like an hour before the show is, and it's live. So it's, you're going live at seven, no matter what. So it'd be like six o'clock and they're handing out scripts to people. They're telling people the matches and you're trying to figure out what you're going to do and all this stuff. So it was probably about five o'clock um, on, on a Monday and they tell me, yeah, you're, you're debuting tonight. I'm like, whoa, okay, what are you doing? Are you going to interfere in the main event with John Cena and CM Punk? And then you're going to join this group called the the new nexus and you, they're gonna go monday night raw is gonna go out focusing on you i was like uh, wow. okay <laughs> you know because it's like monday night raw at the time was getting probably five million views it was like one of the most watched um televised shows you know so it's like uh <laughs> okay no, no time to prepare not really and may, maybe that was a good thing because it doesn't yeah. give you time to overthink things it, really what I did was pretty easy, but at the same time, a lot of the, the stuff isn't, the hard stuff is the, the, the little moments that they, tr they try and create. And it's because when the camera is focused on you and you'll see some of the camera will be on someone for 10 seconds and it's creating that moment that that's what people remember more than any of most of the wrestling matches, you know, and the incidents and stuff like that, that, that go on around that. that those are things that people remember the most. So, so it's kind of, you when you're out there and the camera's on you for 10 seconds, it feels like two minutes and you just got to be staring at someone and don't blink and just don't do anything and just stare. Or you've got to, you know, it's, it's the longest time ever to do nothing. You know, anyone who's in TV will know that as well. So, yeah. yeah. So, so kind of how, how did the, the other wrestlers react when you get in your call up? Did they kind of treat you well and give you kind of a few pep words and pep talks and what happened after the show? Can I imagine that was a massive relief? Uh, yeah, yeah, it was uh, wrestling. It, so it's an individual, even though it's kind of team, it's individual, right? Everyone's out for themselves to some extent, right? To some extent, right? Um, so I think there was some jealousy, to be honest with you, because here's this new guy who's just got here a year ago and he's going to be part of this main event and he's going to be involved, you know, and it's obviously that things are going to take up from him from there. But, you know, I had a group of friends that, you know, were super supportive and was just like, you know, you know, asking them questions and, you know, you just, so many things are running through your mind at that time. It's just mad to, you know, when you think that what's going to happen next. So you just try and focus on, you know, what you've been told, what you know, and you know, what you want to happen. So you focus on that. So, yeah. So once it was done, it was a big relief. It went pretty well. Everyone was happy with it. Vince was happy with it. Everything was happy. So I'm collecting my stuff at the end of the night to leave. Um, to, to leave and to, to go on to the next. No, I think I was flying home. So I was getting ready to fly home that night because they were flying. I, I didn't have to go to SmackDown. And I'm collecting my stuff and I'm pretty much the last one in the arena. And this guy comes, he was John Cena's bus driver because John Cena had a, a bus for himself, like a tour bus just for himself, right? And it, was, it wasn't it was like a tour bus. It was like a moving 
um, apartment. Yeah. Um, um, no expense bed. Yeah. Yeah. I had a bedroom, had a living area, you know, flat screen TV, fridge, you know, stove, everything. Right. So his name was Ronnie. So Ronnie comes in and goes, Hey, where are you going? Oh, someone's going to, so-and-so is going to give me a, a ride to the airport. I was like, Oh, John wants to see you on his bus. I'm like, Oh, okay. <laughs> so I go on, on to John Cena's, go up in this bus, sit in his living area, he starts talking to me, blah, blah, blah. And I've left my bag in the change room at this point because I'm like, I'm just going to talk to John quickly and I'll be back, you know? And I, I know him before because I trained at his gym. He had a gym that a lot of us used to train there. So, I, I you know, it wasn't like first time meeting John Cena or anything like that. You, you know, after a while, you kind of get used to it. And, you know, you kind of, you know, because that's where you want to be. So, you, you know, I'm like, oh, my God, this is John Cena. It's like, he's just... John. You know, some, yeah, he's just John. Yeah, no, really, that's how it was. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so he's like, oh, sit down. Okay, starts asking me some questions. How do you think it got when, blah, blah, blah. Gives me a beer. So I'm like, all right, I'll have a beer with John Cena, <laughs> I guess. You know? <laughs> it gives me beer. So he gives me another beer. We're talking. I'm like, okay, I'm, I think I have a flight in a little bit. So he gives me another beer. And then, then he brings out the moonshine. So I don't know if anyone knows. It's like moonshine is like homemade alcohol. It, t- it tastes fantastic, but it's really strong. So he's like, all right, so... Keep drinking your beer, but I want you taking sips of the moonshine. And he's got this, this big gallon jerk, so I'm taking that. Then he brings out the Jack Daniels. And he's like, you have to gargle the Jack Daniels. And I'm like, I don't really like to drink that much anymore. But this is John Cena. What am I going to say? So he's so I'm drinking a beer, drinking the moonshine, gargling the Jack Daniels. So can you imagine by it was four or five in the morning before I left his bus? They went, luckily the the bus driver had gone to get my bag and they dropped me off at, on the pl- uh, at the airport. Straight on the I have no idea. To this day, I have no idea how I got home. I can remember getting dropped off, but I have no idea how I got home. I was, <laughs> I, don't, this is not, I don't know if I should be on this, but I was so drunk, so drunk. And I think, and to be fair, I think I did the Welsh proud because I think John was, <laughs> yeah. I mean, his driver said he was in a worse state than I was. And oh, so, good. So that was a, that was a problem. Maybe that was the highlight of my career. Maybe I can imagine. I can imagine. I'd have been starstruck with John Cena because he's somebody you, kind of, you obviously see on TV all the time. Another yeah. one would have been Vince McMahon. Just quickly, kind of, how was he to kind of be around? Because I imagine yeah, Vince yeah, Vince McMahon has more of an aura, I think, for me than John. John is a lot more. You see him a lot more, right? So, because I said I was, you know, we used to train in his gym and he'd come home from being on the road and we'd see him two or three times a week at his gym. So, you know, the first time I saw him, yeah, it was a big deal. But after a while, you kind of get used to him and he's kind of kind of down to earth. He's, you know, he's still a superstar, but he's, he's a good bloke, to be fair. But Vince McMahon, you wouldn't see that much, right? He'd be in his office or he'd be, you know, and they call it the gorilla position is where you go out. You know, when you, when you see people come out of the curtain, there's this gorilla position there and they have all these monitors and Vince and Triple H and all these other people are there and, and they're, they're watching the matches and they call. Something that people don't know, I'm getting off the subject a little bit, but is the referees have mics. So John, um, uh, Vince McMahon will be telling the referee, hey, tell the wrestlers we want them to do this or they've only got a certain amount of time left to do this. So... Yeah, so they'll be there. So, so you see him kind of like that, but he, he always had an aura about him that, you know, he was always really cool with me. What I was impressed with was, and this is not a big story, but it was that I met him one time just walking the hall. And this was, I don't know, maybe a month after I'd been on TV. And he's like, hey, Barry, how are you doing? It wasn't Mason or Mason Ryan. I think he knew my first name. And yeah, I, yeah. I thought that was a reflection of, 
how in detail he knew his company. He knew my, he probably knew my second name as well, but he knew my first name. Cause I'm sure anytime anyone mentioned me, they mentioned me as Mason, but I'm sure he'd looked at who I was, maybe a little bit about my background or something like that when I debuted or beforehand to make sure that he knew who I was. And so the fact that he knew my first name, showed, I think showed, it wasn't impressive that he knew my name. I think it was impressive that how de- detailed he is about his company, how well he wants to know his company. So yeah, he's, I didn't have that much interaction with him because I think he was transitioning a little bit to doing a little bit less than not being so involved with the wrestling, still super involved with the company, but the company was growing so much. I think years before he was really hands-on with the wrestlers. He was handing that aspect off to triple H. I think when I was there a lot more and obviously with the company doing something, you know, they had their, they have their own network. They're international. They have, can you imagine on a daily basis, the amount of questions this guy gets asked or what he has to do on a daily basis? Like just think about all the toys. Think about the video games. He has to approve the cover for the video games. Is this toy? Okay. Is this okay? Is so, you know, so be, as the company grew, I think he had to transition from being so hands-on with the wrestlers um to being more doing more of that stuff but it yeah he he definitely had an aura when he walked around he definitely had an aura you just kind of felt it you know when he walked in a room you kind of knew it um from from the fights then you had after your your debut any fights in particular stand out for you as in yeah that was a proud moment um any wrestlers you wrestled against you thought wow you know i really feel like part of the company now because i'm in the ring with this guy yeah, it was, it was, um, it was, a, yeah, it was a crazy experience to be honest, you know, thinking back at the time, like I said, when, when you're in that, you can't have that mindset. Oh my God, I'm wrestling this guy or, but you know, I'm on the same level as all these guys in my head when I'm there, you know, literally is, and I'm not tricking myself. I, I believe that because you had to believe that you belonged, right? Otherwise, you know, you, you're not going to last very long. You're going to be starstruck and stuff like that. So yeah, I had some really good matches with Dolph Ziggler. He was always a fun guy to wrestle because he was really good and he was small, so I could throw him around <laughs> and sort of showcase my strength. I had some good matches with him. I wrestled Kane, which was, you know, that was a big deal because, you know, I, you know, growing up, I'd seen him, you know, and Kane had been around a long time. He'd done some and he's amazing a stuff. Huh? And he's a real big guy. He's, you know, yeah, he's, he's, yeah, he's, yeah, he's, yeah, he's, oh yeah, he's 6'8", six, 6'9", six, 6'10", six, something like that. Massive, massive, probably like 25, 26 stone, you know, massive guy. So that was a, you know, that was fun to be the smaller guy in a match with him. I wrestled Big Show. Um, I wrestled Randy Orton. That was, that was a big deal that leading up to WrestleMania, um, they were building him and CM Punk up as this feud. And so I had a big match with him on uh, Monday Night Raw and, you know, they had, anyone who's a wrestling fan leading up to Wrestlemania they have a big Wrestlemania sign and when you wrestle you always point to that sign because you're going to go there that's what it, they always make a big deal of that. so I had that moment where I pointed so and then I, that moment ended up costing me the match it was kind of a cool, cool <laughs> moment so that with Randy Orton a lot of interaction with, with John Cena um, so, so a lot of those big things I think the, the two biggest moments I think for me was on two pay-per-views I was in the Royal Rumble which was, you know, for anyone who's a wrestling fan, I think that's, you know, quite cool to be in that to be able to say that you were in the Royal Rumble, right? And yeah. not only in the Royal, Rumble, it was at the TD Garden in Boston. I think twenty plus thousand people. It was mad. But you don't, again, you don't really notice it. Like it's like rugby players. I'm sure they, you know, when they're performing eighty thousand people, it's amazing. But once they're in that game that you can't see anything but the, the players on the pitch and the, the ball, right? And it was kind of the same thing. But there was a moment where we were at the new Nexus. There was a group of us. We were in the ring. 
And I knew that Booker T was coming in and I knew I was going to eliminate him because obviously we had arranged beforehand. But I kind of forgot that moment because we were doing something else and I was focused on something else and we got that second and we were waiting for him to, not waiting for him. He, as soon as we'd done something else, he was going to come out. So we did that something else and I wasn't thinking about what's happening. Next minute, his music plays. That's the loudest noise I've ever heard in my life. 20,000 people went ballistic, absolutely ballistic. And that was such a cool moment because we were standing in the ring and we didn't have to do anything, just waiting for him to come down. And he was taking his time because he was milking and he was, you know, um, uh, he'd been doing this for years. So he knew how to work the crowd. So he was there doing his thing, looking around. He does a thing where he does the spinner Rooney and does like the five time thing for people who don't know. He did all of that. So we got to be in the ring and people are going crazy. And we had the chance to kind of look around because you're in character, but you pretend that you're mad at the people for liking this guy. Yeah. You just see people just jumping and going crazy. So that, and then he came in the ring and I ended up eliminating him. And, I, and that one, I also eliminated the great Carly. So that was kind of a big moment and then the other one was um i got to do a pay-per-view at a uh, survivor series at uh, madison square garden so it was a five on five match and i think it was they had I, there were some big stars in that one john cena for one i think randy orton was another one so to be in the madison square garden you know that's an iconic arena and i wrestled there three or four times but on a pay-per-view i think that was the only one that was televised on a pay-per-view like that that was that was the biggest moment. But my, I think my favourite moment was the, the Booker T thing, I think, for me. Um, you, you were compared a lot on the way out to, to America, to Batista, weren't you? Kind of physical looks like. Did you get to meet him at all, just out of interest? Yeah, I met him a few times. And um, yeah, that, I think that hurt my career, to be honest with you. That's, that's another thing. It didn't do me any favours, right? Because you always had that person. And definitely, I could see the similarities, right? I, um, you know, physique, size. You know, just the kind of facially as well, strangely enough, that we kind of look. So when I turned up to the old two arena for the first time, when, when they ended up offering me a contract, people thought I was Batista when I was there. Like Ray Mysterio, I met Ray Mysterio that day and he like came through these double doors and he goes, hey, Dave. <laughs> Dave Batista is Dave is his real name. And he goes. <laughs> it took him about 30 seconds to be like, wait, wait what? He, he literally thought I was Dave Batista. So yeah, I got compared that a lot. I, I, I met him and he knew about it, Dave Batista. Because that day I, I was eating, they catering and they always have catering when they film TV and stuff like that. So they have this elaborate catering. So I'm there <laughs> yeah, I'm diving into some chicken and rice and maybe some cake as well. I'm stuffing my face. And then uh, Dave Batista comes over to me and goes, hey, nice to meet you, blah, blah, blah. I heard I had a twin here today and I didn't believe it until I saw it, but now I, now I can kind of see us. And then we started talking and so, but, but then when I got on TV, he was gone. So I don't know if that was a plan that they waited till he was gone or it was just pure coincidence. So I was never on the main roster while he was there. I was in um, the training um, center when he was there and I kind of met him a few times like that. But outside of that, nothing really. I met him a few times. Nice guy, but, you know, yeah, yeah. We, it wasn't like we were brothers or besties or anything like that. So after after WWE, then you know, time came to move on. Cirque Soleil became an opportunity. So take me through that period of of how Cirque started and and the end of of WWE. Yeah, so WWE came to kind of more of an abrupt end that um, <laughs> I would have liked. It was kind of a little bit unexpected, but. Like I said, you know, you, you, you kind of find that things work out for a reason, right? So 
um, and I and I mean that it sounds it sounds cliche, but it's it's true. But um, he came to Brooklyn. They decided not to renew my contract, um, which was a surprise for me. So, so now I'm you know, <laughs> I'm a guy who doesn't have any real skills. I'm in America. Um, you know, my visa is running out, and I'm like, okay, what <laughs> what do I do from here? You know, and so I sort of started wrestling more internationally. Went to Japan, wrestled in the UK quite a bit. Would come over to the UK for months at a time and wrestled a bit in the US and so, um, some in Europe as well. So I was just scrambling to kind of figure things out. And then randomly out of the blue, WWE called and left a voicemail. And they were like, hey, we have a job opportunity for you. I'm like, ah, oh, okay. They're going to offer me my job back, you know? <laughs> That's what you think, right? You were just naturally, I was like, okay, this is going to be good. And they called me up and they said, Cirque du Soleil, I'm looking to fill a role. And um, they're looking for a wrestler type person to fill that role. And we think you might be a good fit for it. So here's the, e if I send you the email, can you forward your stuff to them? You know, just send them some pictures of you and some of your highlights here. And then, so I send them, sent that to them and they were like, oh, great. Okay. Yeah. We'd love to have you um, for an audition. It's um, start of August. And I was like, oh, I'm in the UK that time. I can't come back. You know, I literally was, I said, I can't come back because I'd made all these dates and I really didn't know too much about Cirque du Soleil. I kind of had an idea about it, but I thought it was one show, right? I didn't know that they had 40 odd shows, you know, 40 different shows or whatever. So I was like, okay, but I'm not going to miss these shows that I've, you know, booked in the UK because number one, this is my livelihood now. I can't just, you know, t turn these shows down and these money down just for the hope that I can, um, <laughs> to this gig that I don't even know what it is so luckily I don't know if they moved it for me I don't think so but maybe I should I should maybe ask them this but coincidentally they managed to move it to like the, the last but one day of my tour so I said I spoke to the promoter I had a good relationship said hey I can't do these last two shows I gotta fly back to do this audition so they were like okay yeah fair enough so I flew back to Tampa literally grabbed my stuff I think the same day and then flew to Las Vegas got to Las Vegas was like you know, the world is spinning around me at that time because I've just been traveling and I don't know what's going on. So the next day we turn up for the for the audition and they tell us to meet us by the gift shop and I wait by the gift shop and I'm standing there waiting. I'm the first one there. And I see, see one of my friends that's a wrestler just like walk in the distance and I'm like, oh, that's so-and-so. And he comes closer and he, and he, and he gets closer. He's like, hey, how are you doing? Hey, how are you doing? <laughs> wait, Where are you here? here? Are you here for that? No, are you here for that? No, so we start laughing. Next thing, one of the other our other friends comes walking along. Wait, wait. <laughs> I didn't know there was four of us, four wrestlers. Um, all of us knew each other, so we ended up doing the audition with each other, which was actually a good laugh that we all did it together. And there was a little bit of competition, but it was so much fun that we we uh, we just had a laugh with each other. And so we all laughed like, all right, good luck. Whoever gets it, I won't be mad because we're all friends here, you know, and we don't really know what it is really. So yeah. it's like, you know what I mean? We got to watch the show the night before as well. So we kind of had an idea, but we didn't really fully understand. So about a week later, they, they called me up and offered me the job. And I was like, okay. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And that, that was, that in itself was a tough decision because it, it was a well-paying job. It offered health benefits, job stability. I was going to be, home every night, you know, because the show is based here in Las Vegas, but it meant giving up wrestling, you know, and that was a really tough decision because obviously I'd spent over 10 years dedicating my life to wrestling. And even though I'd been let go by, by WWE and I was scrambling, I always assumed that I was going to have a future because I was 32 at the time, I think. 
so so, so I wasn't old or anything like that. Or I didn't consider myself to be old, you know. I had plenty of years left, so I figured that I would work something out in um, wrestling. And interestingly, a few weeks before, I'd done a, a tryout with Impact Wrestling with TNA. For people who know, there's another company called TNA, and they offered me a contract, but it wasn't a very good one. And I was really tempted to sign it and just sign in and just figure stuff out from there but luckily i turned it on again it you know it may sound crazy to people but i really think things do work out for a reason because if i imagine if i signed that i would have yeah you know who knows where i've been so luckily they offered me the contract and i had to think about it for a couple of days you know because it was a tough decision and i asked for more money <laughs> again it's all about money team <laughs> here and they said no we can't i said okay fair enough and then yeah. i i signed the contract and with within a month I had to pack up all my stuff, my house in Florida, pack up all that stuff, sell whatever I didn't want to put some stuff in storage and then pack two suitcases and fly to Montreal first because that's where the headquarters is and do some testing there and then fly to Las Vegas and start my life in Las Vegas. And that was kind of similar to what happened to when I moved to Florida in 2010. I literally packed up a suitcase and some backpacks and I think I had like $2,000 or something in my pocket. That's all I had. And I didn't even have a place to stay when I turned up there. Literally hadn't booked anything. Literally, So literally turned up off the plane in 2010 in Tampa, Florida. And just managed to get someone to pick me up. Took me to a hotel. I stayed in the hotel for a week and then moved in with someone. And then, yeah, it's just mad how, how it all happened, really, to be honest. So with the Circuit Soleil, did your training have to develop compared to what you're doing with the wrestling then? Um, yeah, it, it definitely had to change, but, you know, going back to WWE, my training in those days was crazy, to be honest. And leading up to that before, before that, you know, I was, um, that was the biggest thing that led to my success, I think, was my ability to train hard and to, I was, I love training. I think more than anything that I think that helped, you know, I just used to love going to the gym, you know, every day when I would go to the gym, you know, starting back in North Wales, I used to go to, uh, I got to give my mate a shout out, Barry Adams and the zoo gym, brilliant gym. It was literally a barn in the kind of in the middle of nowhere. Um, no, no air conditioning, no <laughs> heating, you know, in the, in the, in the summer, you'd be sweating your, can I, can I, uh, what can I say? Can I swear? Well, I think you've all last done anyway. Oh, sweat my bollocks off in the, in the yeah, sweat my bollocks off in the summer, and then in the winter, the bar would literally stick to your hands because it was that cold. And then sometimes the electricity would go off, and we'd have to put the uh, car lights into the gym to, to, to <laughs> so we could see. And there'd be corners where you couldn't see anything because the car lights would only obviously go in. So that gives you an idea into like the the training, and I think that that led to my success as well. You know, I had training with my mate like we would never miss a workout no matter what and we would all day be looking forward to that workout and then when i got to, to wwe i think you know it went up even enough oh can do it i need my book to get off from okay No, no, don't go there. Hold on, hold on, hold on. We do have him. Sorry, man. No, no, okay, no. So, um, Barry Adams, yeah, car lights. Uh... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, training with Barry Adams like that, um, my, my best mate, we would never ever miss a workout. All day we'd be looking forward to a workout. And, you know, it was just 
when we were in that gym, nothing else mattered, right? We would um, we would just give it everything in that gym. And then when I got to, to America, I think my training went up a notch because even though we were training hard, we, we didn't necessarily have the, the knowledge, right? There wasn't that much knowledge. So when we got to, to when I got to Florida, we trained with John at John Cena's gym, as I mentioned. But John Cena's own personal trainer was his was his best mate, but he was very knowledgeable. So we ended up training with him at his gym. So my training went up another notch. Plus, as well, you've got competition, right? So in my gym that I trained with before, I was you know pretty much the strongest guy there, the strongest guy in a lot oh, of places. Oh, oh. You say that I was in competition for you. <laughs> maybe or the, the <laughs> with the forearm curls maybe some calf, some calf raises maybe but um <laughs> but then when he got there you know he had, he had this um guy who was extremely knowledgeable knew about training but also you had guys all around you right so when i went when i went there for example i would bench press 180 right that was 180 kilos that was something that i always bench pressed before and I can't remember. I used to be able to do it for two or three reps before I went over there and I was um, squatting 220 kilos. Right. So it's, you know, good weight. Um, but, you know, again, it was not so, it was about strength, but it was also about building a physique then. So then I get to, to John Cena's gym and you get, you know, I'm used to being the tall guy, the big guy. And, you know, you have five other guys, that's <laughs> six foot six. That's, you know, 19 stone, you know, and yeah, you yeah. go to bench with them and they're doing five reps on 180K and you, you know, you're doing three and then all of a sudden <laughs> it's like, okay, <laughs> you know, it's like, gives you a kick up the ass and you're like, okay, you know, and then it's, it starts pushing you. So I think from the time I got there, I probably put on a stone and a half in about a year, year and a half of, of muscle just from improved nutrition um, and just training at this gym with this atmosphere of, you know, there was a great atmosphere in my old gym, don't get me wrong. It was, but when you have people that are squatting more than you, benching more than you, doing everything more than you, it's all of a sudden, you know, it changes your mindset a little bit, you know. It wasn't that it wasn't that I wasn't motivated before, but but when you don't, you know, it's like the, the story, right, of the six-minute mile. I don't know if you've heard this story before. They were, the runners were trying to do the six-minute mile, and they were, nobody could break that six-minute. And then one guy broke the six minute mile. And then within, within weeks, there was two or three other people that broke it because they believed that they could do it. Yeah. So it's the same with the gym. So once I start seeing people benching 180, 200 kilograms, 220 kilograms, I was like, wow, okay. You know, they can't be done. I'm, I'm seeing it right in front of my eyes. And not only am I seeing it, these are people I'm competing against as well. So it kind of gives you that kick of the ass, you know? So, um, you know, for anyone that's that interested, I think my best, best bench was um 495 495 pounds which is 220 kilos i think five plates aside for people who are more yeah. and i think my best um best squat was 600 pounds so i think that's well that's definitely six plates six plates and a bit i think each oh, side which that's like 260 270 kilos and then my, my, I deadlifted just under 700 pounds, so, um, which is over 300. It's like 320 or something like that, 320 kilos, something like that. So, you know, a lot of weight. Yeah, a lot of weight at the time. So, you know, that, that I, but I really enjoyed that thing. And what, what they did at that gym as well is they, they had a board, so you could, they had a competition board. So, first, you know, you'd have top 10 and all these guys. So, you'd have 
guys that were on TV at the time, you had guys that were in the training facility and you had John Cena as well. So you'd have this board of top 10. Um, who, who was the strongest then? Do you remember? Uh, there's a guy called Etor Owen, Big E. Big okay. E Langston, he's on TV. He's about, I don't know, five foot 10 and 21 stone. So he's, wide, he's wider than he is tall, you know? That's, so he, he, but, but before that, I think I was one of the strongest depending on what lift right so like bench and deadlift i think i was strongest for a little while um until this this asshole came and (laughs) (laughs) so far but then he was so far ahead of everyone he was like he had his own like thing he was first on everything deadlift like so yeah but i was so, so so you know i'm gonna give myself some praise i was i was stronger than john on everything (laughs) <laughs> stronger than Cena on on bench on deadlift on um on squat yeah stronger than him on on all those things the funny thing was after I left and I I didn't keep in touch with with Cena anyway really but his trainer his trainer's name was Rob so a little while after I left um I got a text and a picture from this guy Rob saying hey John says um an uh, expletive word you <laughs> expletive word you he's finally beaten you on the deadlift so apparently he'd been trying for months to try and beat get because your name's on the board so he wanted yeah. to get above me on that board and been trying for months to, so i think he beat me by five pounds or something like that on the deadlift yeah so but those those were such great times as well just training like that but you you can't train like that forever right it's like you know your, your body's gonna give in at some point so uh, eventually i transitioned more to to lower weight, higher reps, more maintenance than trying to be massive, you know? So, cause at my biggest, I was over 300 pounds. I was, I was, I would get it a lot that people would tell me you're the biggest guy I've ever seen. And yeah. when you're that big, you don't realize, I didn't no, I don't. I don't realize how big I was, you know, that's 21 and a half stone and about seven or 8% body fat, you know, it was yeah, just tough. eating six, seven meals a day and two or three protein shakes. It was just, it was a mad life, but you're in that mentality. Like you, when you're in the middle of it like that, it doesn't seem that mad. Like right now I couldn't, there's no way I could consume that much food. There's no way I could train like that, <laughs> I think. But, you know, you're in the middle and you have a goal. You have that carrot dangling in, head of, in front of you, you know. And so you have that goal and you're just so focused on that goal that it's just, it, nothing seems too much. Yeah, so you've got new focuses in your life now. Um, you've got a family, you said you've got a son, Kai, you've got a wife. Uh, so that they're probably consuming all your life and you're somehow finding time to do real, uh, real estate on the side as well and, and your podcast. Yeah. Well, yeah. So what happened was in, as I mentioned in 2014, when, when, you know, WWE finished, I realized I didn't have a plan B, right. It was like, okay. I always thought I was going to be the world champion. I always thought I was going to be the world champion. I really did. And then that happened and it kind of blew me away, it really caught me off guard. And I was like, what do I do now? And as I said, I scrambled and did all this wrestling all over the world and luckily got, got to Cirque du Soleil. But at that time, I planted a seed in my brain, like I need a plan B. I can't rely on being in the entertainment industry, right? Because it's so, so all over the place. Like you can't, you know, one minute you're the best thing ever and the next you're without a job, right? The pandemic has proved this recently, right? So... For a while, I was, I was interested in trying to find a plan B, and I think real estate just made sense to me. Um, here in America, I think it's a lot different than in the UK. It's a lot 
easier to invest here. There's much lower barrier to entry and there's a lot more opportunity to invest in, in real estate here. So um, I look to invest in, in apartment complexes. Um, you know, you buy the 20, 30 unit apartment complex and, you know, you just buy that and you rent it out to, and usually buy it rented and, you know, you, you kind of grow your portfolio like that and you grow your wealth like that. And you, at the same time you get money coming in every month. So I'd be kind of looking into that for a while. And so I, I started um, with this pandemic. I was like, okay, <laughs> I'm not working right now. What am I going to do? Right? I need to do something to be productive. So I started a podcast slash YouTube channel. Um, and I've just been interviewing people from, from all aspects of real estate, which has been really cool. I've really enjoyed it. I, I really enjoy uh, real estate. I think it's, um, a fantastic investment vehicle and I just really enjoyed doing it. So I invest, I talked to two or three people, investors, agents, lenders, all kinds of stuff. And I talked to them about two, two or three times a week. And then I, yeah, I produce a YouTube channel and a podcast. So it's like, it's yeah. a bit of a U-turn from, you know, wrestler, Cirque du Soleil performer to real estate investor and podcaster, but it just made sense to me. So probably next time we'll be having a, a, a zoom chat i'll be calling you barry the property tycoon and will i <laughs> maybe me and donald trump will be uh, best besties by that point <laughs> uh, maybe maybe well barry thank you so much for your time uh thank you so much for the chat and, and it's been great catching up with you yeah but before i go can i give my show a plug yeah of course go for it so uh it's wrestling with real estate on youtube i have um a, an instagram page called barry WWRE wrestling with real estate. And then my podcast is called the WWRE. There's an S at the end podcast. That's easy to say, right? So the WWRE's podcast. And then my website is wrestling with real estate.com. So if anyone wants to check out any of that, I would appreciate it. Maybe you can put the links in the description. Yeah. De details on the screen, mate. So, uh, You'll have thousands of new followers now. Trust me. <laughs> fantastic, fantastic. Cool, bad. Do you have a Yeah, do you have a Brilliant. Nice one.